Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in, wherever you are, in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. I'm saying that in a silly voice because I say the same words each week, so I might as well vary the voice. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. And as ever, you know what I'm going to say. We've got so much to cram in, in our time together. Some great questions, few notices. And if it's okay with all of you, I will reflect on Rishi Sunak's early days, what it might portend, how he could win the next election and what Labour should do in order to prevent that from coming about. So that's quite a lot to <laughs> cram in um, in our time together and say some great questions for you. Just first of all, before we get going, a report back did a couple of live shows last week, uh, both absolutely uh, full, I think, one at uh, King's Place and the other at the great Rope Tackles Art Centre in Shoreham. And I asked the audiences to predict whether the Conservatives would win the next election under the leadership of Rishi Sunak and by huge majorities, landslide majorities, both audiences predicted that they, the Conservatives under Rishi Sunak's leadership would not win the next election. And that really, frankly, is the best news that Rishi Sunak has had since he became Prime Minister because, as we all know, those predictions are so unreliable. Um, so there we are, Rishi. Some good news that our audiences have predicted you're doomed to defeat before you have even really began your path towards your electoral destiny. Well, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, before I do, for those of you who subscribe to Patreon, thank you so much for doing so. And you will be getting another bonus podcast, uh, it being November almost, or it will be November when you listen to this, probably. And so there will be another bonus podcast on supposed government cock-ups in the context of the Trust Quateng mini-budget. We looked at the poll tax in for your bonus podcast in October, and for November, it will be Blair's march towards the war in Iraq. How much was it a cock-up, a calamity? How much was it the product of calculation? How much was it an aberration from Blair's character? How much was it wholly in character? And I think in answering those questions, we begin to make sense of at least Blair's involvement in one of the biggest foreign policy calamities, well, the biggest since Suez and with many more deadly consequences. So thank you for subscribing. You'll be getting that this week on Patreon, so do look out for that. And the next live shows are the Christmas specials. Uh, taking a break in November, just to take, you know what, I mean, we, we all need to sort of take a deep breath sometimes and just survey and reflect. But then uh, the Christmas specials in which we look back at this unbelievable year and dare to look ahead to 2023 and have some festive fun of course december the 5th at king's place and then december the 12th do forgive me i'm going to mention this a lot because it's a new venue for me the old market theater in brighton so hope to see some if not all of you at one of those two live events so sunak there is a path to a dramatic electoral turnaround 
for him. I have no doubt about that. And it is this. First of all, let's set the scene. There is a view that John Major uh, lost the general election when Britain fell out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992. From that moment on until 1997, he was doomed. That's really not quite the case. And proof of that is in what happened to John Major before 1992. In that 87 to 92 parliament, as Patreon uh, users will know, Thatcher introduced the poll tax. And at the peak of the poll tax unpopularity, it was very expensive. It freaked people out, including Tory local authorities and Tory voters. It alienated Scotland. Labour got huge poll leads. And there was talk that the Tories would never be forgiven for this poll tax. What happened was John Major came in in 1990, scrapped the poll tax, put up VAT, introduced a council tax, um, which was subsidised by the VAT increase. The VAT increased fuel prices. People didn't care. The poll tax was scrapped. And for many other reasons too, John Major won in 1992. And that is what Sunak must be clinging to. Given half a chance, voters in England back the Conservatives. And Sunak will be looking for giving voters that half a chance. I can see the Tory newspapers all be beginning to kind of flex their muscles on his behalf, having rubbished him and elevated both Johnson and Truss in uh, recent times. I can see how they might be acting on his behalf. And that brings us to, and it's very interesting, the advantages Sunak has or potential advantages that Sunak has that John Major didn't have after Britain fell out of the exchange rate mechanism in 1992. The first is that the Tory newspapers turned on Major. They never really forgave him for not being Margaret Thatcher. The son at the time under Kelvin McKenzie had revered Thatcher and was far more influential then than it is now the male similarly, and they were uneasy about Major. They couldn't hero-worship him in the same way because he was evidently more human and normal, and they had kind of put her on a pedestal that he could not quite reach. And so when the exchange rate mechanism happened, they went for Major. Uh, famously, Major phoned Kelvin McKenzie, the editor of The Sun, on the uh, evening the pound fell out of the exchange rate mechanism, and Mackenzie said to Major, we are planning to pour a bucket of shit over you. And they did. And Major never really again got a sympathetic engagement from quite a lot of the Tory newspapers. That's not the case with Sunak now, because although uh, they had turned on him to some extent in their elevation of trust, they have had to move very quickly away from trust and therefore are beginning to put a case for him. This cliche that is going around, the grown-ups are back in charge, are the opening salvos towards a long election campaign in which these newspapers could go for Starmer and 
tell the voters who are the obeying sort in England that Sunak is their person. And that is partly based on things that was very interesting and unsurprising but disingenuous article in the Times newspaper on Saturday. Now, the Times is very influential. It's a complete myth that BBC people in news and current affairs just read the Guardian, the Guardian. It's the Times that a lot of the political types turn to first. A lot of the editors of the programmes, a lot of the presenters turn to the Times and they see it as a kind of impartial paper, wrongly. Under its previous editor, John Witherow, he was a wholly partisan Conservative supporter and so is the uh, new editor. And there was this hilarious uh editorial on Saturday saying that Starmer still had so much to prove in taking on the Labour Party. You know, and this is a real warning to Keir Starmer, because I think he takes the, he and his team have hopes for the Times. His media people, I can tell, keep on briefing the Times stories. The Times responds in its editorials by saying, oh, instead of Starmer's doing well, he's gone nowhere near far enough. Now, here is someone, Starmer, who has suspended the previous leader from the parliamentary party, has completely taken control, and it's very hard to do, of the national executive, has turned around Labour's policy programme, has appointed a shadow cabinet unrecognisable from the shadow cabinet in December 2019. Some of these, I think, are signs of epic leadership, others mistaken. I think it's a mistake to have suspended Jeremy Corbyn, partly because in the election people are going to say, well, if he was that bad, why the hell did you say he should be the next prime minister? And the more bad you portray him, the harder that becomes to answer. But the other stuff is is examples of really focused, ruthless, uh, change-making leadership which you can agree with or disagree, but has turned around the Labour Party. Uh, But the Times, oh, that's nowhere near enough. And whatever Starmer does, the Times will then publish an editorial saying, oh, he's got to go much further. The Labour Party will not be credible until he gets rid of, say, Ed Miliband from his shadow cabinet. Then they'll make another demand, then another. And then they'll tell the readers he's done nowhere near enough. Labour aren't ready for government. Let's give Rishi a full term. You can see them beginning to do that in that partisan way. And I can sense that Starmer's office is going to waste a lot of time wooing the likes of the Times. They're going to back the Conservatives. Stick with Rishi, give him a full term. The Times didn't uh, back John Major in 97. But contrary to mythology, they didn't back Tony Blair in 97. The Sun did. But the Times, which has always been eccentric in its politics and deeply partisan, the Times in 97 recommended to its readers that it should vote for whatever candidate was a Eurosceptic candidate in that election. Bizarre thing. But, you you know, the BBC all nod attentively at these editorials um, and the mood of that paper. So that is one of the advantages of Sunak. I think he will have the papers broadly backing him next time in a way that John Major didn't in 97, but did in 92 when he won again. And the model for Sunak is that 92 one. In effect, the newspapers, the Conservatives, Major and others said, stay with nurse for fear of something worse. And by 2024, you can see 
the case that Major will make. By then, inflation will be falling, probably. Um, inflation always falls in the end. It did, by the way, in the late 70s. There was a famous uh, press conference, the outgoing Chancellor, Dennis Healy, made in the 1979 election after a period of insane inflation where Dennis Healy argued that by then, 79, that inflation was down to about 8%. It was a contentious assertion, but that was based on something. Inflation was falling, and it probably will be in 2024, and the economy will probably be growing from the absolute depths brought about by trussonomics, austerity, Brexit, the pandemic. It will be growing. And so there will Sunak be saying, you know, stay with nurse for fear of something worse. And he has a plausibility that Johnson never had and nor did truss. And there will be the newspapers screaming for Sunak, condemning Starmer for not doing more uh, to reform Labour, even though he's virtually killed himself to change Labour. So that is the juxtaposition uh, whereby you can see a way through for Sunak. He will run a more professional number 10. I was very interested in his appointment of Amber de Botton, uh, was very high up in ITN News and ran the politics desk for a time at Sky and elsewhere. She's now his director of communications. It suggests to me, Sunak, who's obsessed with presentation and projection, that they will run a more professional media campaign uh, than certainly trust that was you know just <laughs> hilariously bad, but also Johnson, who bizarrely, though a journalist, never really understood the rhythm of news, certainly from a political perspective from within number ten, even though he commanded the uh, uh, mail and telegraph like no other prime minister I can recall. So he will run a slick operation, and I think he himself will be incredibly hardworking, unlike Johnson and Truss, both of whom had narcissism as a common bond. They were different in some respects, but um, politics for them really was a branch of show business. Uh, that's not where Sunak is. He is serious-minded, and that will come across, and it will be sincere. He will work around the clock up until, for example, the um, autumn statement in, later on in November and so on. So a more professional operation backed by the newspapers with a clear message, stick with nurse uh, for fear of something worse. Uh, we've taken the tough decisions. We've been through the pain. Don't let Labour ruin it. And England forgets quite quickly when it comes to Conservative governments. You see, I think it's very interesting that it forgot or forgave the poll tax so quickly when in the late 80s it was backing Labour by 20 to 25% in the polls, but by 1992 was quite happy to bring, vote the Tories back in, the same party that had um, done the poll tax. And with this period, Sunak has one big ace, really, which is that it was that insane quasi-trust mini-budget uh, that propelled the sense of doom for the Tories, but they're gone, both of them. And whatever else, and Sunak is a deeply flawed and half-developed politician, but whatever else you can say about him, he was not remotely connected to that 
catastrophe. Indeed, the opposite. He had warned it would be catastrophic if Truss pursued her various half-formed fantasies. In that sense, he feels fresh, like Major felt fresh in 1990, en route to his extraordinary election victory in 1992. Now, you see, in 1992, a myth has formed that voters then never forgave Major when the pound fell out of the exchange rate mechanism. But that's not true either. What did for Major was not the falling out of the exchange rate mechanism. For sure, he was punished immediately in the polls. It would be utterly bizarre after an economic trauma on that scale if even voters in England said, oh, yeah, I'll carry on voting, you know, expressing support in opinion polls. You know, this we've had this period where uh, the pound and the economy has been humiliated, the interest rates went up uh, into double figures on a single day. Oh, yeah, we'll carry on voting for them. No, no, in opinion polls, unsurprisingly, the Conservatives fell behind. But that's not why they lost in 97. They lost in 97 because of what followed that trauma in that the Conservatives started to fall apart as a governing force. Voters don't follow politics, most of us. Those of us in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, we're the freakish ones, as we've discussed many times before, in that we follow the twists and turns hour by hour. Uh, A friend of mine said her hairdresser, when this friend of mine said at the hairdresser the other day, oh, blimey, Boris Johnson... Uh, might come back as Prime Minister, the hairdresser said to her, oh, I thought he was Prime Minister. This was at the height of the truss madness. And that's where a lot of voters are, I'm afraid. And I find it depressing. I kind of think voters should be blamed for not being more engaged, but that's where we are. However, they do clock this. When parties are divided, there is such an intensity of internal strife and headlines generated about weak leadership following on from that internal strife, that they turn away from that party. That's what happened to the Tories between 92 and 97. They decided to have a huge blazing row over Europe. They decided that Major was inadequate. They yearned for Thatcher. And in a way, by the way, they will not be yearning for Truss, or, I suspect, after his utterly self-indulgent, childlike behaviour, In the week before last, will they be yearning for the Johnson era? Not least when we've had the inquiry into Partygate and whether he misled Parliament. And indeed, let us not forget the inquiry into COVID. So there won't be that nostalgic yearning that uh, tormented Major during this period. That's what kind of brought about the collapse of the Tories in 97. The endless rows and splits and so on. And so in a way, I think... A key for Sunak will be something partly out of his control. Whether the Tory party decides to more or less coalesce around him over the next couple of years. If they do, I suspect voters who have only been vaguely aware of what's going on will forgive the Kwarteng Trust budget. And even if they are more than vaguely aware, they will clock that was Kwarteng and Trust. And here is this hardworking, assiduous figure doing his best, brought about growth, inflation falling, etc., etc. 
is by no means certain that the Tory party is capable of behaving itself for a couple of years. There are early signs that it's not. The fact that uh, Sunak felt obliged to give uh, Suella Braverman the Home Secretaryship uh, was an early sign of the deep internal divisions that a leader can only manage and hope to sort of just keep the show on the road in a sort of Harold Wilson-like way. It was an extraordinary appointment, but he obviously felt it was his only route to number 10, and he's already facing the consequences. Then, the fact that the uh, former chair of the party, Jake Berry, felt the need to absolutely go for Braverman uh, in an interview uh, with the largely unwatched Talk TV is, again, a sign uh, that tensions will continue to bubble along. And if that happens, for sure, the Tories will lose next time. But as I say, if they manage to sort of keep up some facade of unity with that messaging about the economy, there is a route whereby England or parts of England will forget about the trust Quateng calamity look at those papers, albeit fleetingly, and turn to the Tories again as they did in 1992. So how does Labour respond to this new era, which is uh, very different from Truss, clearly? Uh, Truss was an absolute gift to Labour, as was late Johnson. It was a myth, by the way, that if Johnson had returned, he would be a great sort of intimidating electoral threat. His period where that applied was to do with Brexit, where both the Red Wall and parts of the elderly south of England turned to him as the figure who would deliver their desire to be, in inverted commas, free. His electoral appeal had faded, Truss had no electoral appeal, and that provided a glorious context for Labour of a 30-point lead. Sunak's going to be more problematic in the sense that though he will make mistakes, and I can assure you he will, he's not as polished and as um, politically sophisticated as he sometimes appears. Uh, He's made big mistakes as Chancellor on all his key areas of responsibility. Uh, Forgive me if I mentioned it last week, but I don't think I did. His um, financial statement in the spring was wholly inadequate to meet the tumultuous challenges of um, the start of the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, and so on, because his instinct is always to do as little as possible, because he is a small state Thatcherite fiscal conservative, self-described. Then he had to come back a few weeks later and put in a far bigger uh, package of spending measures to support this ailing economy. That's one example of a chancellor uh, then who was still deeply inexperienced and reliant on ideological instinct, really, as much as anything else. And, you know, during the COVID thing, his record was really dangerously poor. 
that whole eat out to help out, you know, old dishy, rishy dinners, um, not only spread the disease, but actually in a way that's still underreported, pissed off a load of restaurants. We know uh, restaurants in Cornwall who said it's all a disaster for them because they were full anyway, but had to do this discount and, uh, you know, and then old Dishy recommending no lockdowns and an article in The Spectator where he said all lockdowns were wrong. This is dangerous and incidentally an area where he could come into conflict with Jeremy Hunt, who was very pro the lockdowns and thought they didn't begin uh, early enough. So he is not fully uh, developed and will make mistakes, but he will be thorough. And so the autumn statement over which he's taken, do you remember last week I was talking about the new dynamic, you know, from Hunt being the most powerful figure in the government to suddenly having to answer to a prime minister who knows the treasury and economic policy making far more than he does. It will be Sunak's statement, really, when it is made at the end of November. And it will be pretty tough because we know he, he will follow as much as he can and as much as he senses he has the space to do so, his fiscally conservative instincts. And he will hope that as well as that message uh, in uh, two years' time of stay with nurse for fear of something worse, that he will trap Labour into pledging to reverse some of these spending cuts, albeit implicitly, in which case they can also play the trick John Major played in his winning election in 1992 of warning about Labour's tax bombshells. Frankly, looking at the way Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have approached things, that's not the danger for Labour. I don't think they will fall into the sort of so-called tax bombshell traps. I suspect their instinct will be, as in 1997, to broadly accept what's called the envelope, the uh, size of the state as they inherit it. But that too has uh, dangers for Labour. Because if Sunak, big if, big if, has kind of convinced the voters of his competence, why switch to another group arguing that they too will be competent within the same limits and constraints? I think there has to be a way for Labour, remember, in 97, the economy had been growing for some time and was growing quite steadily. Some of the tough decisions had been taken by the Tory administration, the tax rises and so on. So Gordon Brown used to go on about the Tory, 22 Tory tax rises. What space will Labour have to suggest that Britain will be not only competently run, because maybe Sunak convinces voters that he's competent, but will be a different place to live in, with a different quality of life, that when you fall ill, you dare to hope you might get an operation before you feel a thousand times worse, that when you go out and book a train, that you actually get a seat, and so on. Uh, this whole quality of life debate. And I beginning to wonder now do you, you know what's really interesting that constitutional issues oh and by the way the electoral reform special coming up in the next week or two dun, da, la, dun, da, dun. but you know how it is always with constitutional issues they are taken out of the party political arena by both parties pledging a referendum on big constitutional change whether it's voting reform 
joining the single currency in 97. That was became a constitutional issue that had to have a referendum and so on. I'm beginning to wonder now whether the whole tax and spend debate is so crude in British general elections that the only way round it is to sort of almost take them out of the partisan political arena rather actually than the constitutional issues and say almost offer in a sort of apolitical way labor this is to say okay we are going to be facilitators we will put together a package that modernizes the health service so you know that you will be treated in a reasonable period of time and that there is a social care system that works for you as is the case in northern europe we will ask the best people take the best examples from around europe and elsewhere cost it we will put forward a proposition as to how it can be paid and over to you whether it's a free vote in the commons or a referendum and i loathe referendums i don't know but it seems to me something has to happen because otherwise you will find that unlike the conservatives who even in 2010 when they didn't get an overall majority, moved at the speed of sound to implement the Conservatives' agenda from 2010. Incredibly fast, real-term spending cuts, tuition fees tripled, you know, that massive increase, fixed-term parliaments, uh, breakup of the NHS as they wanted to implement it at first, and so on. It will be the exact opposite. They find that they can't really do the things they want to do because they've pledged in opposition not to do it so they can answer questions those absurd bbc interviews where you know it's like an accountant interviewing an erratic client oh but doesn't that mean you will have a black hole if you don't put x on y and then you have z and so on by the way the absurdity of those interviews should have been exposed by the ones that were conducted during the truss era the fleeting truss era when you know, various Labour figures were said, okay, so you support that tax cut, but oh, you don't support that tax cut. What? So what will you do if they, you know, if they cut that? And then, you know, within two weeks, all those propositions were scrapped. But anyway, that I don't know, the, the only way round that game, I think, is to somehow or other depoliticize it. So there we are. There's much more of that. We've got two years <laughs> to reflect on both these issues. The uh, Sunak's path and uh, Labour's path too. But if it's okay with all of you, let's now have a go with some of your questions. So, okay, uh, it's uh, the email, by the way, steverick14icloud.com. Uh, we've had loads of questions. If it's all right with you, some of them still are, you know, say it's like me, worrying about whether this podcast will date. Things are moving quite fast still, though not as fast as last weekend, where I did have hundreds of questions about the implications of Johnson standing in the leadership contest. By the time I came to record it, Johnson had pulled out. But anyway, here are a few, and they actually relate to some of the uh, some of my reflections this week. Uh, Peter Sumner says, can we inquire about how and where Keir Starmer decides to get his advice? 
Anecdotally, there appears to be a heavy reliance on focus groups, but these are notoriously prone to facilitate a bias. Yeah, that's a really good term, Peter, and you've probably had experience of them. And their outcomes seem most easily to answer questions about how well Labour is doing against the Conservative Party and Keir against Rishi. But the absence of distinct Labour policies remains a frequent, partially justified criticism. Yeah, it is, but only partially justified, I think, Peter, partly because they have got quite a few policies now. And secondly, for the very reasons I was just talking about, uh, you can't really frame in detail your tax and spend policies when you have no idea what you're going to be up against, i.e. if they had done a lot of detailed responses to Kwarteng's mini-budget. Those policies would be out of date too now. So I think they've got to hold their breath and wait to closer to a general election. But they do have to leave space to make sure they have the room to revive these dying, decaying public services that instantly affect the quality of life of everyone, from multimillionaires to the poorest. It's not a kind of our people, in inverted commas, approach. Everyone is affected by the chaotic decline of these public services. Uh, thank you, Peter. Andrew Kitchen, it was interesting to watch Philip Hammond on Laura Kay's show. He's still a uh, political beast who could do with a longer format interview. Yeah, I agree, Andrew. As you probably know, I, I don't watch that programme. They've decided to just do cram in a load of uh, guests and no no one has any room to develop. And it, it makes it boring. Um, I'm sure they think, oh, he's saying that because he wants blah, blah, blah. No, I, you know, I, just, I want it to be interesting and it's boring. Anyway, Andrew says uh, he, as in Hammond, mentioned growth and our adverse terms of trade, hinting, I think, that a return to the single market and customs union is essential. It's still the love that dare not speak its name in British politics, and yet it would deliver growth, revenues, solve the Northern Ireland protocol, and allow us to get back to the politics of economic social priorities. No one dare mention it, and yet we blithely accept a cabinet of security risks. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? The background is the 2016 referendum, Andrew, you know, and it is hard to imply an overturning of it. But actually, getting into the single market is not an overturning of it. Again, I think the words need to be found for Labour to have the space to do that if they want the economy to grow in a sustainable way. Uh, Stuart Grant asked an interesting question. Stuart had no idea I was going to reflect on major winning in 92 and then losing in 97 and posing the question, is Sunak 92 or 97? And he says, why did John Major survive after the ERM debacle, but Truss resign after her budget? Um, Is it to do with the rolling news, social media now putting more pressure on? It's an interesting point, Stuart. I don't think it's that. The fundamental reason why Major survived is a few months earlier, he had won a triumphant general election. Truss had got a mandate from a few elderly Tory members, and she wholly misread the scale of that mandate. And that's why uh, she fell very quickly. Also, what they did was far more an act of self-slaughter, actually, than the more complex story of the ERM. Thank you, Stuart. I uh, hope you're well. Uh, Noah Keat, I hope you're keeping well. Uh, yeah, I'm not too bad, Noah. I hope you are as well. I very much like your opposition to the mantra of the 
uh, adults being back in the room. I just think it's a cliche. Oh, the adults are back in the room. I think it's it's kind of so bloody simplistic, to be honest, and what this could mean for a more technocratic political agenda. However, is one reason for hope the return of Andrew Mitchell as the development minister in the foreign office? Yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. Uh, I think that is a really great appointment. Let's see if Andrew Mitchell can persuade them to put the um, overseas aid commitment back up to 0.7% of GDP as it once was. Um, I think he's got one hell of a fight on his hands. He was unfairly uh, booted out of government over that silly thing with his bike and the police and all of that in the Cameron era. And uh, he's a he's a decent guy. He suffered a hell of a lot from all of that. And um, he shouldn't have done so uh thank you very much for for that and um let's now go on to uh venetia kane thank you venetia for oh, nice things about the live show which i think venetia you uh watched on the stream uh rather than live she's wondering about um as you said, Sunak is safe for the next two years. He will therefore be able to carry out a mini shuffle, reshuffle in, say, six months' time. That is the point where Suella Bravham may go, uh, along with some others he'd rather not have had to appoint, uh, rather like Starmer at the outset of his election as leader of the opposition. I think you're right, actually, that he obviously put her in to get the top job. Now he's got the top job, he can afford to lose her in the same way that Starmer, once he'd become Labour leader, could turn on some of those he was affecting to support. That does raise some issues, and he will have issues about his decision to bring her back in as at the Home Office. But I think now he's safely in number 10. So he'll be quite relaxed, I think, if she falls, as she well might. Stephen Townsley has an interesting point. Seems to me that Rishi Sunak has another first to put beside his name. The first Brexit Prime Minister. Boris Johnson famously wrote two articles, one supporting leaving the EU and the other remaining. Theresa May was a Remainer. Uh, once the chance of being Prime Minister came into her future, she created the Brexit means Brexit mantra. Yeah, that's easily forgotten. The early Theresa May message. Utterly meaningless. Brexit means Brexit. Then there was Liz Truss, an enthusiastic Remainer. Only Sunak seems to have been the consistent Brexiteer. Rishi Sunak is Britain's first Brexit PM, yet we don't even know what sort of Brexit he wants. Yeah, good point, actually. He needs to spell out why. I don't even know why he was. You hear him talk about freedom and all this nonsense. Um, but he's never really spelt it out, why he was. And some are suspicious that it was an expedient act because, you know, enrichment, his constituency, they were for it. Who knows? But he needs to make a big speech on it. Thank you for that, Stephen. Joe Erber, who uh, was at King's Place the other day and very kindly gave me uh, a, a bottle of Trappist beer because uh, someone else from the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative emailed and said uh, he was having a great pint of Trappist beer in Brussels whilst listening to the podcast. Well, Joe, it was fantastic. Thank you very much. 
Um, and it was great to see you and others at King's Place in the bar afterwards uh, the other night. So uh, Joe wonders, how do you think Sunak will manage the ever-present Tory split between protecting green spaces versus build, build, build? There was a clear libertarian instinct with Liz Truss to potentially cut red tape, so-called, in inverted commas, freedom. Yeah. You know what I think is going to happen, Joe? And I've heard Michael Gove already speak about it. The power of the local community will prevent build, 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 even one of those builds from happening. The moment you say, oh, no, it'd be up to the local communities, you get straight into nimbyism, not in my backyard. Uh, so that route towards growth, of which trust was such uh, proponent, as was Dominic Cummings, although neither of them had much else in common. I don't think it's going to happen. Anyway, uh, Joe, thank you very much. And I love the beer. Thank you. Finally, Les Buchanan from a sunny Barcelona. You're always in a sunny Barcelona, Les. As we mercifully wave goodbye to Jacob Rees-Mogg, can we look more closely at a post-Brexit economic fallout. The famous take-back control mantra looks more and more ridiculous as the UK authorities fail to impose regulations on imports from the EU. All very well to take back control, but if you fail to exercise it, what was the point? Well, take back control, as as you imply indeed suggest, was um, a phrase that was brilliantly potent, and utterly misleading. I don't believe anyone who voted Brexit feel any more in control of their lives in any shape or form than they were pre that date in 2016. You know, you could see it now, take back control of the borders. But, you know, Liz Truss wanted more immigrants to come in. That's why she fell out and had a shouting match with Suella Braverman before Braverman resigned. And well, Sunak needs to spell it out, as we've just been saying with regards to Stephen's email, uh, what he sees as the great... There's so much talk of Brexit freedoms and Brexit advantages. It was one of the themes of my live shows last week. What are these things? What does Sunak believe in? Take back control is something I think Keir Starmer, if he was smart, would seize these potent phrases and turn them to Labour's advantage, not by saying that he's going to reverse Brexit. He can't do that with the 2016 referendum, so relatively recent. He could do more to criticise Lord Frosty Frost's appalling deal. But these phrases, take back control, the left behind, all that, I've always thought they were basically sort of left of centre phrases that could be used in a way that actually engage with those who turned away from Labour in the red wall. Anyway, we're back again uh, to Labour in the next election. It's two years away. As I say, coming up soon, the electoral reform special. I want to look again. Did any of you clock uh, that report from Policy Exchange with what it was proposing with the NHS and scrapping NHS England? You know, we were talking about the future of the NHS um, a few podcasts ago, and it kept on recurring as a theme. Anyway, have a look at that. It's worth it. I might try and do something on that as well. Um, I think they're on to something in some respects. But look, thank you so much for listening. It's going to be, yeah, well, we're in a new sort of era, aren't we? By the way, the other thing, Lady, we've got to do is pin all the 
consequences that they're trying to address Sunak and Co on Sunak and Co. But I think that's the easy bit. They'll 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 do that. Well, let's uh, stay in touch on all fronts and do email. Please leave a rating if you've got time because it just makes it more available. And see you again next week. Have a great time. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>